Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. In popular American stories, defeat is used either to amplify our sense of good versus evil or to indulge the illusion that we, the supposed underdogs, will be victorious in the end. Consumed uncritically, these stories reinforce a self-perceived victimhood, amplify our self-righteousness, and dull our minds with false consolations about suffering, death, and loss. In the Gospel of Mark, the defeat of Jesus operates in an entirely different way. In Mark chapter 15, the cross is not a jam into which Jesus became stuck, but a stumbling block for all those who see themselves either as victims or as the, quote, good guys. The defeat of Jesus is not a suspenseful plot device strategically placed to indulge our gluttony for triumph in the end. On the contrary, the cross is our defeat. Full stop. As if to amplify this point, the biblical writer slows the story down, marking the passage of the hours to ensure that every insult is keenly felt. It is only in this state of shame and humiliating defeat wrought by obedience that we come to understand the difficult meaning of Psalm 22. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Mark, chapter 15, verses 23 to 32. You're listening to the Bible as Literature. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 208 of the Bible as Literature podcast. We continue this week with our discussion of the passion narrative of the crucifixion in Mark in verse 23 of chapter 15. They tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. The fact that he refused reminds us of Abraham who refused to take anything of the other kings, lest they might say they made Abraham rich. Here Jesus turns away anything that people would offer to him because he doesn't need anything. He has everything that he needs already, which is the gift that his father gives him. And this is what Jesus has been trying to teach throughout this passion. The text is trying to teach us that Jesus doesn't need anybody. He doesn't need what Pilate offers. He doesn't need what the priests offer. He doesn't need what his students offer. He doesn't need anything or anyone except God, which means he is here only to serve and only to give and not to take. Taking goes against his mission, and that's how he's able to continue to teach even when he's being crucified on the cross. Look, even in Proverbs, you have everyday ordinary advice about refusing the delicacies of the rulers, of the wealthy, of 
not giving yourself over to anyone who might seduce you with something nice. So I think this point about Jesus refusing wine mixed with myrrh, it's not wine mixed with gall. And people try to weave these stories together into what they consider a true historical account, but this is heretical. You can't weave the four Gospels into a single account because then the idea you have in your mind of what really happened is your construction. You have to deal with the fact that here in Mark, the author is not saying what he says in the Gospel of Matthew. This is not gall. I've seen people trying to figure out, is it gall, is it myrrh, was it both? You're mixing apples and oranges. The point is that in Mark, it was wine mixed with myrrh, and maybe it makes sense what some scholars say, that this was a way to make the wine more appealing, and that gives a lot of weight to your reading that Jesus is turning down something that's potentially seductive. And they crucified him and divided up his garments among themselves, casting lots for them to decide what each man should take. And of course, this is a verse, a famous verse from the Psalter. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, be not far off. O you, my help, hasten to my assistance. Deliver my soul from the sword, my only life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth, from the horns of the wild oxen. You answer me. Again, with this context, which is made functional by a direct quote on the part of the author, we now understand that Jesus is in fact saying, I don't want anyone's help. I don't want to be consoled because my help comes from the Lord. In fact, there is no help. There is no consolation except the Lord. That's the thing that's amazing about Jesus. Jesus isn't refusing their help. He's recognizing their help for what it is, not helpful. He's recognizing their consolation for what it is, so-called consolation. They have nothing to offer him that the Lord can't offer. And if the Lord doesn't give, then Jesus doesn't receive, and that's enough for Jesus. Again, following on last week's episode on functionality, Richard, the point isn't that the psalmist predicted the crucifixion. The point is that the author of Mark is making the psalm functional in this episode, in the Gospel of Mark, so that you can understand why Jesus is defying the consolation of scented wine. I mean, this is why I get frustrated when I talk to missionaries or people who want to send me a verse, and let's talk about this verse that comes from the Psalter. See, this really happened. When what you did, Father Mark, is what's correct, which is let's read the entire psalm and see what the point is, because the point of that psalm is not, oh, one day there'll be people casting lots. That's not the point. The point is, even though their sword is against me, even though they've taken my clothing and they're casting lots over who's going to take it, they've stolen the only thing I even have, the one thing on my back, the clothes on my back. His hope that the Lord's will will be done does not wane. He stays strong in his trust, not belief, his trust that the Lord is all-powerful and can do whatever he wants. It was the third hour when they crucified him, nine o'clock in the morning. The author places time markers so you can, as a reader, feel time elapsing because we're going to hear what happens at the third hour and at the sixth hour and then at the ninth hour. So even though we have events 
that appear boom, 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 one after the other, the author makes us understand that this is taking place over the entire time. Not so that we can historicize and imagine, oh, well, this was only a two-minute conversation. What were they doing for the other two hours and 58 minutes? That's not what we're supposed to be doing is imagining. We're supposed to feel the length of time. I mean, don't forget, Father, how much we were talking about Ephthys, Ephthys, Ephthys earlier in the book, that it was hurry, 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 make it happen, make it happen, make it happen, get out there, plant the seed, plant the seed, plant the seed. But now, during the crucifixion, the author draws out the event. So it takes time. Now that Jesus's ministry, so to speak, his fulfillment of his father's will is coming to fruition, the author deliberately makes it take time. Marking the hour is a way of, as you say, throttling the way that we hear the passing of time in a text. The inscription of the charge against him read the king of the Jews. Again, this fits very well with the rejection of any consolation. Because if you accept a handout from the king, you are accepting his aegis. If you don't accept the handout, then you've defied the person who's offering you something. You're not putting yourself under their grace. We think of grace in magical and mystical ways that are all very broken and silly. Grace is functional. To understand grace, you have to see someone who has a death sentence on their head standing before the judge. And the judge says, you're pardoned. That's grace. But when the judge says you're pardoned, you are now under the authority of that judge. Jesus is not accepting anyone's authority, not because he's claiming to be the king, but because he ascribes kingship to his father. And in doing so, he becomes his father's proxy on earth. And as the proxy on earth, this sign has a double meaning. Because if you accept Jesus as God's proxy on earth, then you understand that Jesus is a king in the opposite way of human kings. If you believe, though, in the power of Pilate, and by extension the power of Caesar, then this is humiliating not just to Jesus, but to anyone who would want to call himself a Jew. And so you can either understand this as something that is humiliating you, or this is something that is transforming you and transforming the way you understand power. And I've talked to Christians before who have a terrible time with this scene, who fall precisely on the side of Caesar. They say, oh, we don't have a crucifix in our church because we don't worship Jesus crucified, but Jesus resurrected. No, in fact, you have a problem, those who think like this, with Jesus overturning challenging and even replacing your notion of what power and strength and kingship are. They crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left. And here, again, in Mark, I want to beg our listeners not to synthesize an amalgamated combined version of the passion. Because what happens in Matthew or Luke or John is specific to the agenda of those authors in their books. Don't mix it all together and say you have a true understanding of what happened. In Mark, all it tells us is that there are two robbers. And the point here in this setting is that they are numbering him 
among the thugs, the thieves, the criminals, the people who are outcast from society because they can't behave correctly. The reason why he was there with these two thieves is so the author could bring to mind Isaiah 53, that he was numbered among the transgressors. So we then have to, in our brains, go back to the suffering servant of Isaiah. In Mark, the thieves don't say anything. They don't have names. They don't have attitudes. They're just props. They're not personalities. They're props in order to bring in this verse. Again, I don't want people to historicize and think, oh, Dr. Bennett is saying now that there weren't actually thieves there. There are thieves there in the story in Mark and among the transgressors in Isaiah 53. And he had to be numbered among the transgressors because you have to be numbered among the transgressors. We said last week that the function of the law is to show our weakness. This is why Paul is so frustrated in Galatians. Because the law was given so that you would become humble before your neighbor. And you were using it like a protein shake to flex your muscles. I'm better than the Gentiles. That's why he's angry with Jerusalem in Galatians. That's what the conflict with Peter is all about. How can you take something that was meant to humble you and make it into your protein shake? So, of course, Jesus had to be numbered among the transgressors because the Bible teaches us what we should all know, that there's no difference between you and me or a prostitute or a thief. The difference is an imagined difference we create in order to establish a social hierarchy in which we are better than others. And this flows precisely with the sign, the king of the Jews, because as I said, that is meant to overturn your idea of what kingship is. Well, look, here we have a king who's numbered among the kings? No, no. he's not numbered among the kings. Among the gods? No, not numbered among the gods. He's numbered among the transgressors, the guilty, those who are convicted and sentenced to death. Those are the ones that he keeps company with. He is the opposite of king. I don't even want to say anti-king because that makes him sound like an alternative king. He's the opposite of king. When you think of king, he's the opposite. And this is what the scandal is about Jesus because he's supposed to be manifesting God and he's the opposite of what you think God is. This is how Jesus not only smashes your idea of king and power, but your idea of God itself. Those passing by were hurling abuse at him wagging their heads and saying, Ha! You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days? Save yourself and come down from the cross. And here, he's making Psalm 22 functional in the discussion of the crucifixion. All who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip. They wag the head saying, Commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him because he delights in him. Yet you are he who brought me forth from the womb. You made me trust when upon my mother's breasts, upon you I was cast from birth. You have been my God from my mother's womb. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. The key point is the key point of Paul's epistles. There are dominant functions, and the word trust, pistis, is a dominant function in Paul's letters. And the psalm that Mark is quoting deals with the question of trust. You want Jesus to come down from the cross in verse 30 for a whole bunch of reasons. 
Number one, you can't stand looking at him because if your king loses, that means you're going to lose too. You're ashamed. You're embarrassed. You want someone you can be proud of as your head, not somebody who was dragged through the mud with the thieves. That's number one. But number two, the cross is a problem because it demonstrates the fact that your protein shakes don't work. The choice in the Bible is between your biceps in which you go at your own and you prove you can do it or your weakness with dependence on God. Jesus is showing that the fulfillment of the law is to depend on God and not on your own biceps. So it's all coming to a head. But you need to look at your king on the cross and accept that this is what biblical kingship is all about. If you pay for a bodyguard, you get yourself into trouble and the bodyguard gets beaten up. The next time you get into a situation with that bodyguard, you're going to wonder about the effectiveness of that bodyguard. For the people walking by, Jesus is their divine bodyguard. So now he's getting beaten up. So either he has to have the last laugh and come down from the cross and end up beating up Pilate, or he's going to be defeated and they have to reject him and go with Pilate because their image of what power is is a divine bodyguard. They are watching the crucifixion in Mark the way Americans watch a superhero film or the way kids used to watch Hulk Hogan in the 80s. He'd get beat up and then he'd start shaking and suddenly he'd win. They're still hoping Jesus will come down from the cross. They're ashamed that he's up there. They want him to show that he has power. They want him to come down and win and conquer. They're waiting for his flesh to be powerful to overcome. They don't understand that his obedience has overcome his flesh. That's what they don't understand. And in verse 31, you have the tail wagging the dog. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes, were mocking him among themselves and saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. I say the tail wagging the dog because the chief priests and the scribes are supposed to be led by the Torah and they're supposed to impart that to the people. And instead, they're just listening to the people and they're, echoing what they're saying. Yeah, they're just repeating what they're it's saying. It's embarrassing. And then this statement, he saved others, he cannot save himself. What do you mean by sozo? What does Yahshua mean? What does victory and salvation mean? What does it mean to be saved? How do you think he saved others? You think because he healed someone of their illness that he saved them? Or did he save them by teaching them? They thought he had powers. He used his powers on others. He can't use his powers on himself. They think that salvation is about power, when in fact it's the opposite. Salvation is submitting one's own fleshly power to divine power, to God's power, to God's will. And let's be clear. Do not make out of this a cult of weakness, because... The point of Jesus being powerless is so that his father can definitely flex his very intimidating bicep. And as we learn from 1 Corinthians, the father raised Jesus in a very specific way. He raised him in power so that once and for all, the will of God would be established and the nations would be gathered. 
And Paul is very clear in 1 Corinthians that everything will be put under the foot of Jesus Christ. So it's about weakness so that a non-fleshly power could gain ascendancy on the earth. And that's the power that the scriptural writers are impregnating us with when they co-opt the power of Caesar. That's what we were saying in earlier episodes. That's the whole point of Simon of Cyrene. Because when you're forced to do the Torah by the Roman oppressor, and the prophet is saying, the Lord sent the Roman oppressor, you get the point. It's not a game. Let this Christ, the King of Israel, now come down from the cross so that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him were also insulting him. Again, it's the point we were making earlier, Richard. You want to see a miracle. I can't tell you how many times people have said to me, from the time I was a kid, well, I would believe if I could just see a miracle. What are you talking about? You obviously haven't read the story of Jesus Christ. What are you believing in? Correct. You're believing, you're believing in your divine bodyguard whom you pay to protect you, whom you ultimately control. So you can protect yourself by paying for their muscle, their muscle for hire. That's what they think God is. They think God is their muscle for hire. If they pay him enough, then he'll go and protect them from their enemies. But they don't understand that God is not for hire. God has no need for anything you would pay him with. God has everything he needs, and he will flex his muscles when he needs to flex his muscles according to his will. Here's the point of the inclusion of the psalm in this section. You have to place your trust in the Lord when you see him losing. That's the test. The word here is translated believe, pistevo, I believe, pistis, belief. But as we've said many times, and we've hammered, especially in our handling of Paul's epistles, you have to hear this word in Greek as it's functionally used, which is to indicate trust. It's all about trust. Can you trust in the Lord when he's not saving his champion? Can you trust the father of Jesus when Jesus is losing openly? He's being publicly portrayed, as Paul says in Galatians, as the loser. Even the transgressors, even the people who are the lowest of the low, set themselves above Jesus Christ. Even they were mocking him and insulting him. Even they were expecting him to have fleshly power and be able to save them who are on the cross as well as himself. And Paul's point in 1 Corinthians is that it's because Jesus was so weak that he was raised in power. It's his weakness that is the function that activates the power of the kingdom. I cannot stress this enough. And that's why in 1 Corinthians, Paul is whipping the reader for all those chapters. Anybody who actually reads 1 Corinthians faithfully can't help but feel that Paul has been berating them and beating them down the way a patrician would berate the weak who came into his sympathine. Because Paul is trying to teach the addressee of the letter to the Corinthians to become as small as Jesus Christ. 
that has nothing to do with an idea of Christianity that is popularized today, that we go to be consoled and lifted up and encouraged. That's not what I read in 1 Corinthians. What I read in 1 Corinthians is I need to teach you that you're no better than the Gentiles, let alone the prostitute and the thief or the beggar or the blind man or whatever. The cross is serious business. And in this regard, Christians have lost their way because we don't talk about the cross of Jesus Christ anymore, scripturally. We just sell our abbreviated version, which is about loss and wins, failure and then success, as though the plot of scripture is like the plot of some Star Wars movie. We got in a jam, but in the end we won. No, there's much more going on here and there's much more at stake. The cross is the symbol of Roman tyranny. And simply by presenting the cross in this story as a reflection of Paul's teaching of the crucifixion, they overturned the Roman Empire people. The cross is not a jam that Jesus got into. The cross is not a stumbling block for Jesus. The cross is a stumbling block for us who have expectations who have our desire, who have our will, that we want to place on Jesus. And when that gets broken, we can no longer trust in Jesus. And that's the stumbling block that he places in front of us. The cross is the destruction of Jerusalem. The cross is the destruction of our claim on power. It's the destruction of our ego. It's the destruction of human identity. It's the destruction of clan versus clan. It's the destruction of any claim anyone has on righteousness over and against their neighbor. It eliminates all of that so that everyone would be numbered among the transgressors. Notice how people don't like to talk about sin anymore. They think it's too offensive to talk about people's sin. It's kind of sad. <laughs> or, they, or they localize sin to some political issue they want to emphasize. No one talks about transgression the way Mark is talking about it. That no matter how good you think you are and no matter how hard you work or no matter how many religious codes you observe, you truly are no better than the prostitute. And you can't even say I'm the same as the prostitute except I'm lucky because I have this teaching. Then you don't understand because the teaching isn't to make you better. The teaching is to make you more wise so that you wouldn't abuse the prostitute. And having the teaching. What is having the teaching? There's only doing the teaching. And when you do the teaching, you put yourself at the feet of the prostitute. So how could you be better by having the teaching? This is the radicality of the Bible. It is radical, this idea that... We are no better than anyone else. I'm not giving lip service to this. I'm not saying it the way we say it to be polite. I'm saying that according to Mark, in the eyes of God, the person whom you despise the most, who you think is the most wicked, you are no better than that person in God's eyes. It doesn't matter if you go to church. In fact, if you go to church and read the Bible, you are despised all the more because you're still no better than the prostitute, but you can live under the illusion that you are because you wear nice clothes and you say nice things and you follow the rules. But you're stuck because then you come to your church during Holy Week and the priest reads to you the Gospel of Mark and you have to reconcile the fact that Jesus, the one whom you like to praise, 
was put on the same level, no, excuse me, was put on a lower level than the ones you despise. You have to hear it that way. You may have no issue with thieves. Maybe you think it's fine. I disagree. I think if your house is burglarized, you'd be really angry. And then to see Jesus with them would make you really angry. But if you want to understand, Mark, think of the person that you really think is bad and wicked or stupid, whether it be the other political party, the person who engages in certain behaviors, the person you disagree with, the person you can't reconcile with because you can't talk to them anymore because they're so lost. Those are the people that scripture is putting in your face as it puts the Roman in the face of the Jew. Thanks very much, Mark. Just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening.